Our second scripture today can be found in the book of Ephesians. You'll find it in the ESV Pew Bible on page 1163. Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and, having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me begin with a confession. I preached too long last week. Don't say amen. (laughs) Too soon. I went 52 minutes, guys. That's not okay. Oh, thank you. You know what? Maybe I'll just do it again. At 38 minutes, though, was my greatest crime, because at 38 minutes, I know this because I always give a listen to my sermons before I post them, I said the word, finally. (laughs) Finally, I said, and then I went on jawing for 14 more minutes, and ironically, at the end of those 14 minutes, when I said, let's pray, and you knew it was over, all of you thought the exact same word, finally. And that's kind of a thing that preachers do, right? They say, finally, and you're like, yeah, this isn't finally. This is like the end of the Lord of the Rings. There's like six more coming. But it's sort of what we see happening, I think, here in Ephesians as well. Because we see Paul saying, finally. And we go, oh, okay, our study of Ephesians, which has spanned quite some time, is nearing its end. But there's so much more for us to cover. And I think it's some of the most beneficial and exciting stuff in the entire book. Because the apostle is not just saying when he says, finally, I'm almost done, stay with me, or just a few more odds and ends. No, he's implying with this word here, finally, that he's about to say something of great import that is a a conclusion of all that came before it, filling in the last piece of the puzzle as he's been telling us how we live in light of what Christ has done. A brief recap of the letter. It began the first part of the letter with doctrine, as Paul tends to do, telling us first what God did for us in Christ. He kind of explains the calling that we have, that we were in darkness, separated from God, strangers to the promises, etc., etc., and he called us out of the darkness into light. He reached down into the miry pit and pulled us out and washed us off and made us clean. Then he exhorts us to live a life worthy of that calling, And he told us how that would look in a number of different settings. He reminds us that we were once those who walked in darkness, but now are children of light, filled with the Spirit, and exhorts us to be filled with the Spirit. And finally here, we have this call to battle an instruction for carrying out the battle, a holy war against an unseen enemy. And you see, a holy war, a battle... What is this about? Well, of course, according to the New Testament, this is inevitable if you follow Jesus. According to the New Testament, if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we will take part in what's called spiritual warfare, for lack of a better term. 
That is the Christian life. It's not let go and let God, Jesus, take the wheel. I said a prayer 25 years ago, and now I just sit back because I'm going to heaven. No, it is be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God and stand on the evil day against the evil one. I think it's telling that this particular teaching comes to us in a letter to the Ephesians. You might remember from our study of Acts that when Paul went to Ephesus, it was actually not the first time he wanted to go. The first time he was passing in that direction, he wanted to go up into Asia, and he was kept from it. The Spirit prevented him from going into Ephesus. So he must have been, as he finally was truly approaching, going, oh, am I going to be allowed this time? He's moving along a, a Roman highway called the Common Highway, goes through a plain, and he must have been feeling a lot of anticipation. Then it goes up to a ridge where you have one of these vistas where suddenly you see the entire city laid out before you, and the largest, most prominent and first thing that you would see upon going up that ridge and mounting that view would be the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. The temple of Artemis was quite an imposing structure, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, to which maybe 10,000, 8 to 10,000 pilgrims would go every year to worship this goddess, to pledge their loyalty to her, and to ask her for help with their problems. For those pilgrims, as they came up onto that ridge, undoubtedly the sight of that temple brought some sort of hope or anticipation. For your average traveler, at least it would bring a sense of awe at the grandeur of the thing. But for Paul, it was a reminder that we are at war and that the enemy has outposts everywhere. That there are rulers of spiritual wickedness in high places set against Christ and those who follow him, his church. Powers so vast that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can stand against them. There must have been a sense of just palpable darkness over this city. Because this city particularly was a hub of darkness. Ephesus was famous not just for its pagan temple, but for books of magic and sorcery that were just called Ephesian scrolls as shorthand. Even if they were made somewhere else, they were often, you got an Ephesian scroll because that was something that Ephesus did. It was a hive of demonic activity. And in an area where that was common, in fact, when Jesus is, is uh, giving letters and John is taking letters, remember this in uh, the beginning of the book of Revelation, he says, right to the church in Pergamum, which is just about a dozen miles away, I know where you are in the place where Satan's throne dwells. This is an area of the world, Asia Minor, where there is spiritual oppression, and so the original recipients of this letter to the Ephesians had encountered the powers of spiritual darkness up close and personal and been delivered from them. And it's noteworthy, I think, as, as Paul gives us all these categories that we'll talk about in a minute uh, of principalities and powers and rulers, that the word powers, cosmocrator in the Greek, is actually a word that's used in some of these Ephesian scrolls that we have. It's used to refer to, to invoke Artemis of the Ephesians, whose temple was there. This demonic goddess worshipped in a, a sex cult of supposedly sacred human trafficking and the like. It was a dark and wicked place. And here Paul is with the name of Jesus. We see the results of his entering into the city and the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts 19. As Paul sets up shop in Ephesus for two years, there he preaches and teaches daily. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. And it has a huge impact. 
Because all of these people have been in great bondage and now they are freed. And what do we see them doing but having an impromptu bonfire in the streets where everyone burns their scrolls and books of, of occult writings. And we're told they're worth 50,000 drachma altogether. When's the last time you spent 50,000 drachma on anything? No, this is millions of dollars. But to them, it's nothing. It's like when Paul looks back at his own religious past and says, yeah, at the time I thought it was my righteousness and my benefit, but now I see that it is scubala. It is a pile of manure. And so they, they burn these things. And I think as we bridge the context between that world of magic scrolls of incantations and our world of iPhones and, and bullet trains, we should briefly discuss the average person's view of the spirit world in that day. Now, they were well aware of its existence, more than we are. In that way, they were almost ahead of us, in a sense. But they were horribly misinformed about its nature. The average Ephesian would have believed in all sorts of fanciful spirits, spirits of the dead, uh, imps and demons, gods and goddesses galore, the spirits of the great heroes and, and, and titans of their own mythical past. And of course, all these spirits were understood to be fickle, with mood swings all over the place, including especially the gods. But you had to navigate all that. You couldn't just not engage it because their understanding was that their success in life in business, in love, in that race that I entered today, all of it kind of hinged on the relationship at that moment that I had with these spirits. They're kind of in the hands of these spirits, these principalities and powers. And so when the Apostle Paul arrives with the name of Jesus on his lips and commands spirits and they obey, the people in Ephesus take notice. Now, of course, a lot has changed since this. Our unbelieving neighbors view the world as, as a closed system. This universe as a, a closed system. There's no room for a spiritual war of light versus darkness. The dragon against the lamb. Unless that's just a metaphor, perhaps. And maybe this is why out-of-control conspiracy theories are, are so popular today. I think that might be part of the thing. People look around at all the evil in the world. They see that there's something big and sinister at work, and they're correct but since they've written off the spirit world, their assumption is, well, this must all just be people cooperating in an unprecedented way, coordinated efforts behind every nefarious thing in this world. As believers, we understand that there is a conspiracy, an ancient demonic conspiracy to turn people against their creator and against one another. And throughout this book, starting in the third verse of the book, Paul has pointed us to this unseen world, these heavenly places, as he calls them. That there is a spiritual war raging is assumed through this entire book. And the fact is that everyone lives in the midst of this war, whether they're a Christian or not, whether they know it or not. We know this. In fact, this is one of the main things that sets us apart from the world around us. The world that is largely materialistic. And by that, I don't mean the way we use that term that they put too much value on possessions and money and things, although that is also true, but rather that they believe only in the material world. That's it. It's often called atomistic, too, that if you can't, in a laboratory, measure something, it's imaginary. And therefore, we've moved beyond these understandings of a spirit world or a spiritual war or battle that, the, you know, you've got these building blocks of everything that is. And apart from that, it's all make-believe. 
The world laughs at the idea of a spiritual war. If you ask someone, do you believe in the devil? I think the most common response is first, wait, a literal devil? And then usually followed by, of course not. That's just a real distraction from the actual struggles that need our attention. In 2013, a a survey was done of 1,000 U.S. adults. I actually find this to be a little less bleak than I thought, but 57% of people said they believe in the existence of the devil then. I'd be curious to see how it's changed in eight years. 28% deny the devil's existence. But then in a different survey from the year after, 40% of millennials said Satan is not a real being, but just a symbol of evil. So what do we even mean when we ask someone? We have to be very specific. What do you mean if we're going to understand where our culture kind of stands on these things? And today people hear devil, they immediately think of a cartoon character, something silly. right? A, a red and scaly guy with a bifurcated tail and carries a hay fork. The world thinks the whole thing is goofy. And, and can't believe that there are those who haven't moved beyond this sort of mumbo-jumbo. And if we buy into what the world is selling here, we as Christians have already seeded the battle. You've heard it said on a number of films and all over the place that the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. I prefer E.K. Simpson's way of putting it. The father of lies works his deadliest havoc by shamming dead and writing his own obituary in smarmy terms. The wolf prays the fellest when he masks himself in sheep's clothing. Of course, not everyone in the world around us rejects the idea of a spirit world. But many of those who don't hold a materialistic view of this is it go to the other extreme and embrace an occult view not too far off from what the average Ephesian believed. Even while belief in Christ is mocked as backwards and silly, belief in Wicca, the paranormal, reincarnation, tarot cards, energy healing, inner spirit guides, these sort of things is on the rise and more and more accepted. The primary difference, perhaps, between today's spiritualists and the people in first century Ephesus is that those in Ephesus at least feared these spirits. Today they're thought of as benign, friendly helpers, which may be an even more dangerous position to hold. Even in the church, we see both of these things. We see those who embrace pagan practices and perhaps baptize them with Christian language. They're no big deal, we're told. And then there are those who have a de facto materialist view. They may say, I believe in Christ and I believe in the things of Scripture, but they don't take part in any way in the war. The philosophy seems to be essentially live and let live. I remember preaching through Joshua for 22 weeks years ago, And a dear saint who's no longer with us came up to me after six or seven weeks and said, are we almost done with this thing? I mean, this I I have no relation to this. I I can't relate at all because this isn't what my life is like, all this fighting and war and all this stuff. And I think that is kind of the problem. We look at the battle, the, the epic battles in the Old Testament, and we don't think to ourselves, how is this related to the battle in which I find myself? We say, oh, thank goodness I didn't live in a world like that. We need to be careful not to downplay the significance of the invisible war happening all around us. If you are a believer, you are a target of demonic attack. And I'm not talking about possession in the sense that we think about it in Hollywood films and that sort of thing. The Bible actually never even uses that word. No, the the Greek word that's used is daimonizomai, which is kind of a verbal form of the word demon. It means demonized, influencing us 
to anger and bitterness, to lust and greed, to laziness and self-worship. We have the Spirit indwelling us, so we should think not in terms of being possessed, but oppressed or suppressed. And that's enough to render us spiritually powerless. We need to be against these things. There can't be a live and let live. There can't be an out of sight, out of mind. Let's just leave the tenuous peace the way that it is. There cannot be this kind of indifference to the world around us and the war around us. The word against takes place five times in verse 12 alone. We are against these things against the principalities, against the authorities, against the rulers of this present darkness. Are you against them? Firmly against them? Or have you made peace with them? Are you sort of coexisting with the world, the flesh, and the devil and learning how to not step on each other's toes? That would be the most comfortable approach, in the flesh anyway. Then we can relax, let our guard down, and of course we don't have to face the awkward truth that many of the world's favorite pastimes and pet projects and positions are actually demonic schemes. The sorts of things that ought to be our battleground against the dragon. This, I think, explains the question that is so often asked when you're studying the Bible and you're in the Gospels and you read about demonization and Jesus casting out demons and, and Jesus liberating people from demons. And people say, how can we not see this anymore? And I think the operative word there is we, we don't see that in America in the 21st century, but it is not gone. I, I have a, a friend named uh, Dr. Bob Bennett who's written two books on this subject. He's a Lutheran missionary, and he has been to Madagascar and, and all, East Asia, all sorts of different places, and he writes about how whenever he leaves the sort of Western grid of assumed materialism, he sees demonic powers at work in ways that sound just like they're lifted out of the pages of the book of Acts. Why don't we see it here? Well, why would they risk the peace, this tenuous peace, when the powers of darkness can just operate from the shadows unnoticed and unchallenged? I wouldn't. I'd, I'd say I got a good thing going. So we're going to talk about each aspect of this war over a number of weeks. And this stuff is very important. And too often we Baptists, I think, avoid this topic because we're afraid we'll look too charismatic or something. Who cares? I think maybe we're also a little bit afraid to think about it. It's unpleasant. It's a little bit spooky to think about Satan and demonic power and spiritual warfare. But like most things, it's an awful lot less scary if it's not unknown. When you turn on the light, you go, oh, okay, I see what I'm dealing with. So we're going to make it less unknown by reading the scriptures together. This is central to the Christian life. I don't want you guys, like often happens in the summer, to be hit or miss on this. I'm not saying don't go on vacation. We're going on, vac go on vacation, but we've got the live stream. You can bring it up on your phone. We've got the podcast. You can listen to messages after the fact. And starting this week, if you go on your Right Now Media, little plug there, uh, you can go to the channels, go to Judson Baptist Church, and you'll find that we're putting these things up now. And this is something, I think, that builds on what comes before. There's going to be a building, and we don't want you to miss a step along the way, because this, again, is incredibly important. And I think it's incredibly providential. As we're looking forward to, at the end of the summer, evangelism training, we need to be ready for spiritual warfare. Do you think the enemy won't put up a fight? When you start attacking his strongholds and flipping his people? Now maybe you're thinking, hold on there. 
Pastor, whatever happened to Jesus saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you peace. I've got peace. Peace I give to you. Peace I bring you. And now you're saying, no, 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 what he brings us is war and nonstop battle and fighting, and you've got to be ready for that. It seems like a contradiction. Is conversion an entry into warfare or an exit from it? Well, this, of course, like all good and sound theology, is a tension, is a bit of a paradox that we live in and will only live in until the end of this age. But at the end of the day, it's fairly simple to understand. Peace with God means enmity with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and vice versa. You can't have peace with both. You will be at odds, at enmity with one or the other, with the light or with the darkness. And in a sort of paradoxical way, the only way to truly have peace in this life is to continue to make war against the sin nature, to make war against the world system trying to squeeze you into its mold, and to make war against the devil. And yes, of course, by Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, Satan is ultimately defeated. And his power over the saints is already broken. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Yes. And yet he fell to the earth. And until Christ comes again, he continues to attack and tempt us. I think it it relates nicely to a a story that I heard about a snake in a garden on NPR. Uh, The story was that there was a four-foot-long western diamondback rattlesnake in this man's garden, and his wife came into the house shrieking and screaming and, and frightened, and he thought he'd be the big man, and he, he grabbed a hoe, he went out, he struck the thing, severed its head, and then he said, see, honey, I killed it. And to try and be really tough, he went and picked up the head. And the head bit him and, and sunk venom into him. And 20 minutes into their drive to the hospital, this man began having seizures. He lost his vision. And unknown to them, he began internally bleeding. And they met up with an ambulance and then a helicopter which flew this guy. He was only 40 years old and he was, he was dying from a single bite from a dead snake. His organs were shutting down. They saved his life. And later in this story, they asked Harry Green, a biology professor at Cornell University, what was going on here. And he said... A severed viper head certainly can deliver a dangerous bite, as can the unsecured head of a recently killed snake. Harry Green, the uh, biologist, told NPR that snakes typically strike quickly and rear back from whatever threat they perceive. But because the one in this instance was dead, it latched on until someone forcibly removed it and continued injecting venom. And so it was worse than it might have been. I think this is a picture of what we're dealing with. In Genesis 3.15, we're told, there will come one who will crush the head of the snake. Okay, the snake will be defeated. And at Calvary, Jesus said it is finished. And that hold over us was broken. There is salvation now for all who believe. But because for the time being, that door is thrown wide, come all who will, come and have eternal life, the enemy continues to rage. The the defeated and, and crushed snake continues to attack And for us, we must be on guard. The fact that Satan's ultimate and eternal defeat is guaranteed should not make us neglectful or careless in how we carry out warfare in the spiritual world. It should animate us all the more to push toward holiness, to be fervent in our prayer, in our reading of the Scriptures, to bring the light of the Gospel out into the darkness with boldness, to stand firm, strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. We also see here that we need to be intentional in this war because we read about these schemes 
of the devil. To me, that word schemes is kind of too cute by half, right? I think about like despicable me or like some Bond villain or something scheming or Aaron, not that I'm equating those at all, but like sometimes she'll be outside looking around her garden with this kind of sort of maniacal look on her face and she'll come in, I'll go, what were you doing? And she'll say, scheming, scheming about what gets planted where. This isn't cute though. This isn't Aaron in the garden. This is the serpent in the garden. This is deadly. So we think maybe we go with the King James, which says the wiles of the devil. I think we all see the problem there. A little too close of a coyote connection, acme and all that. I'm tempted to just translate the word strategies and talk about the strategies of the enemy, but the Greek implies great shrewdness and cunning, crafty, creative methods. So I'm going to say schemes and maybe wiles and trust you to know that this is deadly serious. And perhaps the coyote connection is okay. In light of this story that I encountered this week, like many sheep ranchers in the West, Lexi Fowler has tried just about everything to stop crafty coyotes from killing her sheep. She's used odor sprays, electric fences, and scare coyotes, which I assume is just a scarecrow intended to scare coyotes. She's slept with her lambs during the summer and has placed battery-operated radios near them. Like they were going to be like, there's a coyote coming. I don't know. I get that one. <laughs> She's, she's trying everything. She's corralled them at night, herded them during the day, but the southern Montana rancher has lost scores of lambs, 50 last year alone. Then she discovered the llama, the aggressive, funny-looking, afraid-of-nothing llama. Fowler said, llamas don't appear to be afraid of anything. When they see something, they put their head up and walk straight toward it. That is aggressive behavior as far as the coyote is concerned, and they won't have anything to do with that. Coyotes are opportunists, and llamas take that opportunity away. That reminds me of my friend Cliff, who I've been involved with for several years, went down to Texas and saw some of the training he was doing and ending human trafficking and that sort of thing, and then I went to Israel with him where that can be dangerous, and the thing that he says all the time is, guys, head on a swivel. He was, he's military. He's like special forces, the guys that you're like, I want you by my side, definitely. Um, and he's always saying that, head on a swivel, head on a swivel. Don't be buried in your phone, even if you're walking around your hometown. Head on a swivel. And that is a, a refrain we ought to continually remember when it comes to spiritual warfare. Head on a swivel. Be the llama. Look up, walk toward it. That is the kind of approach to spiritual warfare we're going to see laid out. Now these schemes go all the way back to the garden. The first scheme was when the serpent did his homework, realized what it would take to, if he was going to have any shot at taking this man and this woman who were in perfect communion with each other and with God and break that. And he went in, he found them naked, not just physically, but spiritually. They had no armor on. They were not ready in any way for this spiritual encounter with darkness. And he brought the fall upon us because he was able to leverage their appetites of the flesh. Paul gave us another example just back a couple chapters ago in Ephesians 4.26 when he wrote, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, it seems that, like James told us, when you sin, it's because you were enticed and dragged away by your own shameful lusts. But the enemy will leverage those things, will use the world, will use the flesh to try and cunningly drag us away from our Lord. This is how he works. It is indeed crafty. I'll admit, I've seen just about every Hollywood movie there is about exorcisms and demons and Satan and priests and all this stuff. And they all portray the, the topic as 
two things. One, very scary, very creepy, and two, very obvious. And yet people are never quite sure what's going on. Like, like the girl's spitting pea soup out of her mouth and her head is going around and she's floating off the bed. And they're like, what could this be? <laughs> it's not obvious though, right? And, and because of that, when you ask someone, even a believer who knows the Bible, are there any demonic influences in your life? They, they kind of read it as like, well, I, I don't crawl around on the ceiling and when I'm looking in the mirror in the morning, spiders never pour out of my mouth. So no, probably not. Banish these thoughts from your mind. This is deadly serious stuff, and it's subtle. Satan and his angels are masters of subtlety. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So the things we're talking about will not be fantastical, crazy over-the-top stuff. It's going to be as practical as it gets. Starting with the fact that since our enemy is crafty and cunning, we need to be as well. We need to have some schemes, it seems. Jesus told us, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Those things do not contradict. They go together nicely in this Christian life. We need a battle plan. And not how we tend to think of like the Redcoats battle plan in the Revolutionary War, or at least at the beginning of it, where they're like, oh, I've got it. We'll dress like the Kool-Aid man. Stand shoulder to shoulder, walk toward the gunfire, and victory will be ours. Cheers, 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 cheers. I'm talking about like Gettysburg-style stuff. I'm talking about where they're shoring up the weaknesses in their, their lines and protecting their flank and trying to outflank one another. If you've watched the movie Gettysburg and, and you've made it to the end, uh, you've seen uh, portrayed fairly faithfully how Little Round Top went down, which was kind of a decisive point in that, in that battle where uh, Chamberlain had all of his men low on ammo trying to defend this flank, the left flank of the Union Army, and they were being overrun by Confederates, and he made this brilliant strategic move to say, fix bayonets, charge down the hill while opening like a door, then pushing them over here where another charge is going to come and decimate them, and in many ways, kind of won the war if you kind of trace it back. We need to be strategic. We, we need to think about coordination. We can't be fighting each other. There's been so much about unity here for a reason. We have to have unity against the powers of darkness. We can no longer, in a world that is more and more hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ, be, oh, those Presbyterians and oh, those holy rollers. and oh, the, the church of Jesus Christ is the church of Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Your politics are different from mine, so I don't think you're a true Christian. These are the sorts of things we need to repent of and banish from our lives. Thankfully, Paul is going to lay out for us how we begin to prepare for war. We're not going to get into the details of it today, but it will be, I think, very helpful. Do not underestimate the enemy, though, because Paul does go on for quite a while in verse 12 about the strength of the enemy, not to frighten us, but to wake us up. He says, we struggle not against flesh and blood. That would be perhaps the first mistake we might make. Because part of the subtlety of Satan is to convince us that our real enemies are human opponents. Obviously, we do contend at times with human adversaries, just as Jesus did, and the apostles did, and the, the early church did. But what St. Paul is telling us here is that even in those situations, these are just skirmishes within a much greater 
invisible battle, visible physical manifestations of the invisible war going all the way back to the garden. For example, in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 14, he talks about the, quote, deceitful schemes, same word in the Greek, schemes of those teaching false doctrine. Those are, are humans. Here we see the source of those deceitful schemes is actually spiritual, not human. If Satan can get us to hate each other and view each other as the true enemy and turn against each other, well, then he can start to build in this us versus them mentality at the core of who we are. And now he's practically won the battle. We're on a fast track to abandoning the Great Commission because people who oppose us are no longer deceived. They are no longer in bondage. Precious souls that need to be saved. Oh no, they're the enemy that needs to be crushed. Revenge in any form is a great example of this folly. You made me feel terrible, so I'll make you feel even worse. But if our human enemies are anything in Ephesians 6... There are the darts that Satan is throwing at us. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But, I mean, would it make sense in battle if a dart is thrown at you? Go, what? And then turn all your attention away from the enemy to the projectile and begin hitting it and stomping on it and crushing it. No, keep your head on a swivel and your eyes up. Be on guard is a refrain repeated again and again throughout the New Testament. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. But he goes on to lay out uh, a number of categories. They are rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Just as there is a heavenly host, the God of angel armies, well, there is an unholy host. Many have tried to take this text and turn an entire kind of demonology out of it, turning it into a sort of org chart for Satan's uh, group, you know, where you've got him at the top and then you've got like a mafia thing, right? Uh, under captains and all this sort of thing. Now, sometimes it's given one way where the first uh, spirit's mentioned at the top and then the last at the bottom and sometimes it's the other way around, which kind of amuses me, but this isn't the point at all. Now, perhaps there are different nuances to each of these terms and we will look at those, but there's greater overlap. And what we see here is St. Paul doing what he's been doing throughout the book of Ephesians, which is piling up terms. This is a, a way of using rhetoric to make a greater point, to emphasize this point. In this case, our enemies might. He does the same thing with the same subject in Ephesians 1. Starting in verse 19, he's, he wants us to know, quote, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And finally, <laughs> this brings us back to the first words of the passage. Be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of its might. I've always thought that be strong by itself is a strange and kind of pointless command that's like be taller don't don't be so weak be strong and sometimes we even see it in the old testament and if you take it in its context you understand what's being taught be strong in the lord here it is uh, it is overt be strong in the lord we have the source of this strength now it's something attainable and in fact the word strong here it's not an adjective he's not saying be that's the verb strong that's the adjective rather it's a verb that means be strengthened 
Perhaps it should be translated, be strengthened in the Lord and by the power of His might. Back in chapter 3, he prays for the Ephesians that according to the riches of His glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That's what's being talked about here as well. Be strengthened in your inner being by the power of His might. Because without that, we're toast. We're hamburger. We cannot stand up against the forces of evil ourselves. As Calvin put it, there is always more to enfeeble us and we are ill-fitted to resist. This reference to spiritual powers and authorities in heavenly places reminds us that what we're up against is above and beyond us in many ways. And yet, by Christ, is no longer above, but cast down. Revelation 12, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And yet now even they are infinitely more experienced, shrewd, and perhaps powerful than we are. But we have access to one far greater. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, John writes in his epistle. And so we have access to the power of his might. The NIV says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, trying to make it a little more accessible. But I think you lose something there. Because this could be translated, be strong in the Lord and in the dominion of his might. Or in the sovereignty of his might. Our strength is not the same as his, only we have less of it. It's qualitatively different. And we have access through Christ to the sovereign power, the dominion of the God of the universe in Christ Jesus. So as I told the kids, yes, clothe yourself with Christ. Clothe yourself in his glory. Clothe yourself in his righteousness. I think it's telling that it was in Acts 19, in that story of Paul in Ephesus, where we have the story of the seven sons of Sceva, the high priest. It's right after the, the bonfire with all these things and the, this great uh, work of God and, and this great upswelling of revival in the city of Ephesus. But we, we read about these, these uh, exorcists who go around casting out demons in different ways with different formulas and things. And they've heard about the great power of this Christ that Paul is preaching. And so they say, let's give it a try. And there's a man who's demonized and they see him raging and they say, in the name of Christ whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And the guy says, the demons say, well, Paul we know, and Christ we know, but who are you guys? Jump upon them, beat up all seven of them, and they run out into the city naked, having had their clothes pulled off of them. And I think that just showcased that they were naked going in. They weren't wearing the armor of God. They were not getting their strength from the power of his might, but rather in much the same way that we saw the Ark of the Covenant a few weeks ago used as kind of a lucky charm, trying to use the name of Christ as a lucky charm. Relying on our own strength or leaning on our own understanding will never in the long term bring victory here. It's sadly ironic that as belief in God has waned in many parts of the world, replaced by a human-centric approach to the world, things seem to be getting worse and worse, and no one seems to see the correlation. But given that the vast majority do not even understand the nature of the world they live in and the war that rages around them, it shouldn't surprise us that the solutions they concoct are inadequate. Band-aids on a hemorrhaging wound. We, on the other hand, have the solution. We have the weapon that wins the war. And being strong in the Lord means that the resurrection power of Jesus is an everyday reality for you. 
And that means putting on the armor before we face our enemy. We will pick up there next week. Same exact time, same exact channel. And now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these instructions to take up the armor, to be strong and stand against the wiles of the devil, to be shrewd. Lord, we know that we so often are negligent of this battle. We are so consumed with the vain things of this world that we don't even have time to think about the unseen world. Lord, we confess and repent of that and ask that especially as we are thinking about uh, upping our evangelism game and, and being trained in, in evangelism uh, methods and, and empowered and equipped to do that work all the better and all the more that we would take seriously the fact that there is an unseen war. Light versus darkness that goes back to the beginning. And Lord, we know that uh, the outcome is not in doubt. And we pray that that would embolden us to fight fearlessly, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Amen.